church. Would you please rise for a uh, <clears throat> cheerful reading from Deuteronomy 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. Practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spirit, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Though these nations you're about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. Will you please pray with me? Father, you are holy, and the practices of those caught in sin are detestable to you. We confess that it's easy to see the actions of ancient nations as depraved, but we often fail to look closely for the depravity in our own lives. <clears throat> we often fail by not having zeal to drive this depravity out. We have not followed your command to be blameless before you. Yet, Father, we thank you that in your son Jesus we have one that meets all your standards, and through him we are counted blameless as well. May this good news daily change our lives, that we may reflect your light to people still walking in darkness and depravity. We pray that our hearts are open to hearing your word preached through Jeff this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, it is an uplifting passage, isn't it? <laughs> Encouraging. Uh, we're, we read that passage because uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 28 today. And today is a really strange story, and we'll get there. Uh, Carrie and I first moved here in 2015. We were looking for homes to rent, and just about every home rental that we found had a basement. And just about every basement and every home rental that we looked at that we were thinking about renting had what uh, sort of a cement room that we, we find out, found out is what they call cold storage. And we kept asking uh, the real estate people who were helping us out, what, what is this room? Is this a bomb shelter? What is this? And so I would come back and uh, ask people at the church, and they would tell us, no, because of the predominant LDS culture here and their, their particular or peculiar end times uh, ideas, they're told they have to have this cold storage down in their basement so they can survive the apocalypse and that sort of thing. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you. For several years, Carrie and I kind of laughed at that. We would bring it up once in a while and just kind of joke about it because we thought it was funny until COVID hit. And at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, widespread fear and uncertainty gripped communities around the world. Empty shelves told the story of a country that had been locked down and had been gripped with sheer panic. As news of lockdowns and quarantine measures and reports of shortages spread, many people reacted by panic buying. Remember that? Essential supplies. Of note, most notably, toilet paper. And we could feel our LDS neighbors inside of their houses just smiling as if to say, look who's laughing now. And now we all have cold storage, don't we? We have a little supplies stocked away for a dystopian future. Should keep us alive exactly for two and a half weeks. Fear and desperation can be powerful motivators. Such is our story today. 
Saul is going to descend, folks, to a new and catastrophic low. Motivated by his desperation and his fear of losing it all, To recap, if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we remember that Abigail stops David, as Ryan told us about last week, from seeking revenge on Nabal and essentially becoming Saul 2.0. And she shows great wisdom, and she teaches us the doctrine, not just of saving grace, but restraining grace. And in chapter 26, David uh, refrains from killing Saul once more, upholding his mercy and honor. That, that is a story that is, that is almost identical to chapter 24, where instead of involving him cutting off a piece of Saul's robe to show him, I had you dead to rights, instead he sneaks into the camp at night, and he and his compadre, they grab the staff, the javelin that is stuck right beside Saul in the ground. And in in the morning, he shows it to him, Saul, I had you again. And this time, Saul finally relents. And it really does look like he is done pursuing David. And so, they part ways. They part ways once again. Moving to Philistia, the Philistine cities are on the coast, coastal. And so he moves over to the coast because Saul at least knows where the region that he's in right now. And so in chapter 27, David earns King Achish, who is the king, the Philistine king of Gath. He earns his trust and becomes his personal bodyguard. And Achish lives by the dictum, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And the Philistine hordes now in chapter 28, we open chapter 28, the hordes of Philistia are at the gate ready once and for all to rid the land of Judah and Saul and his army. And Achish has a trophy, the mighty and feared David as his personal and permanent bodyguard. And there's abiding irony in the story. The one who had defeated Israel's challenger, the Philistine, giant from Gath, Goliath, that, one, that same one is now guarding the king of Gath just a strange irony. And we'll see this story unfold over three scenes today. And the first scene is Saul's desperation leads to a final act of disobedience. Saul's desperation and fear over losing it all leads to a final and catastrophic act of disobedience. Driven by desperate fear, Saul seeks an answer for his tormented mind, a solution to his dilemma that is frankly unimaginable. We pick it up in verse 3. And by this time, Samuel the prophet, remember Samuel the prophet, by this time he had died. All Israel had mourned for him, camped, uh, and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they came, uh, camped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid in his heart just about pounded out of his chest. Verse 6, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets, none of the regular means. And Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. And his servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Talk about hitting rock bottom. Ever since Saul so publicly displayed the Lord's command to... uh, 
disobeyed the Lord's uh, command to wipe out the Amalekites, he has not sought the Lord even one time since then. And now he's trying to seek the Lord, throw a Hail Mary pass in the end zone and hope the Lord will just catch it and save him from this calamity. But instead, he's been dallying with idolatry on the high places under the tamarisk tree. He's become a mass murderer of God's priestly uh, priests at Nob, unjustly pursuing and persecuting the guiltless and the innocent. And on two occasions, he's been confronted by David now and forced to admit David's innocence and also David's calling to be the next king. He's had to admit that. And unlike David, who has frequently inquired of the Lord, and the Lord has answered him frequently, directly, given him direction and guidance, Saul doesn't seek God at all. He seeks God's functionaries. He seeks the intermediaries, reducing Jewish religion to empty soothsaying and paganism, having rid the land of soothsayers and mediums and spiritists. Earlier, now he seeks one, and he is told there is one left in the city of Endor. Hear me well. Saul didn't fall from the heights of his royal calling overnight. Saul didn't get here overnight He didn't wake up one morning and say to himself, well, I think it would be a good idea today to practice the occult. No, my friends, this is the inevitable end of a life that has been out of control for a very long time. And step by step, he's gotten there. And our principle today is that Satan rarely ever starts with an invitation to become a devil worshiper, doesn't he? He rarely ever does that, if ever. He starts with one little compromise after another after another until, in the end, he has a worshiper and a slave to sin on his hands. Notice Jesus' temptation. Notice the pattern of it. Matthew chapter 4, what is the first thing he, he does when he comes to Jesus? He doesn't know who Jesus is, and so he comes there, and he says, hey, if you'll just take these rocks, these stones, turn them into bread, I think we'll all know that you're the Son of God, and it'll just satisfy your hunger as well. Jesus has to answer him with the word. And then the next temptation, let's go up to the temple. Let's just go up to the temple. I'll take you up there. We'll go up to the highest place. Listen, here's what the Bible says. Did you know the Bible says that if you step off this temple, the angels, God will send his angels to to catch you? And then Jesus has to say him, listen, the scripture also says don't tempt fate. Don't, Don't tempt God. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord, your God. And then right after that, the temptation is if you would but bow down and worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms, all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Notice the pattern. Notice the escalation. Similarly, we are almost never tempted to have an affair today or to become a raging prescription pill addict. Just wake up in the morning and decide, I want a pill addiction or to descend into the abyss of the, and darkness of self-pity pity and self-wallowing and self-hatred, making everyone around us miserable. Satan never shows us that constant anger toward others leads to the destruction of relationships, that a refusal to reconcile and forgive leads to divorce and shattering our families. He never shows us that when he first comes to tempt us with that first thing, does he? He never does. Remember Eve in the garden. Remember his temptation with her. He's showing her the fruit. Look at that. Doesn't that look good? 
And she saw that the fruit was good. It looked good. It looked like it was delicious. But he didn't show her, listen, hey, if you eat of this, you're going to damn the human race. He didn't say that to her. He doesn't show us the end. And he doesn't show Saul the end of his life either. The end of his life in these sinful, pointless pursuits. And he never shows us where we're going to end up. He hides the consequences all the while lying to us. Hey, just hang in there. Keep at it. Someday this is going to pay off. And instead of paying off, we tragically discover that we have to pay up whether debt of sin has come due. And now, with Saul, the devil is due a soul. Scene two, the encounter at Endor. Now, there's a hint of shame here when he goes to Endor to meet with this woman. There's a hint of shame in this act. Notice what Saul has to do in order to seek this woman out, shrouded in a cloak, common clothing, in a hood, the once royal, regal vizier, king of God's country, has stooped to an unimaginable low. Verse 8 says, Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men, and they came to the woman at night. And Saul said, uh, consult a spirit for me. Bring up, bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, you surely know what Saul has done, right? How he has cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the land? Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? And then Saul swore to her, by the Lord. This is what strikes me, is that even in, as he is seeking an occultic solution, a satanic solution, he is trying to bring Israelite religion into his sin. And he, so he swell, swears to her by the name of God, the Lord. As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me. He answered. And when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. She yowled. <laughs> Just what? And then she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You're Saul. But the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit. I see a spirit form, and he's coming up out of the earth. Now, the word here for earth is the word ha-eretz. And in the ancient Near East, this can often refer to the netherworld. And so this is what this woman is seeing. Samuel is coming up, and the woman answered. Uh, then Saul asked her, what does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, the word for spirit in this text is the word eov, and it means spirit of the departed dead. That's what it means. And so this word is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to someone's spirit uh, that has left the body at death and moved on to the nether regions or the afterlife or Sheol or whatever you want to call it to join their ancestors in rest or to join their ancestors in torment whichever the case may be. So just a couple examples of the prophets acknowledging this practice in the ancient world. I'll just put up a couple quick ones for you. Isaiah 8, 19. Now, in this context, is a context where God is telling the nation through the prophet Isaiah that they are not to fear their enemies, they're to fear the Lord. And they're not to seek His, uh, His direction through illicit or unauthorized means, they're to seek the Lord as He is prescribed. And He says, when, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the spirits who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? This seems really strange for you and I, but this wasn't strange for people in the ancient world. 
This was the kind of thing that they thought they could do on a regular, regular basis. We also look at Isaiah 19.3, and this is a prophecy in which God is prophesying against Egypt to destroy Egypt, and He's going to confuse them, and He says, Egypt's spirit will be disturbed within it, and I will frustrate its plans, and then they will inquire of worthless idols, ghosts from the dead, or ghosts of the dead, departed spirits, and spiritists or spiritual mediums. So this is the practice here now that, that Saul is doing. This is what he is doing. He's doing what the nations of the earth do. And in an eerie and unnerving moment, in a spooky moment, the woman shrieks in horror as she sees Samuel's ghostly visage rise from the netherworld. And notice Saul's response. Don't miss it. Saul is a man who is afraid of all the wrong things. He's a man who is afraid of all the wrong things. He fears the Philistines, and if God had been with him all this time, he should have no fear of the Philistine hordes at all. And he fears Samuel. As soon as he hears that Samuel is there, he falls down in fear of Samuel. But he doesn't fear the Lord, and he never has. He doesn't fear the Lord who said this practice that is going on among the nations is forbidden among you. This comes from Moses. We read it at the top of the sermon. Let's read verses 10 through 11 again of chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. He says, no one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. And then what he does is he goes on to warn them that if you do this, if you go into the land and you pick up this practice from the surrounding nations, you're going into exile. I'll destroy you. I'll put you into exile in Assyria and Babylon. And in 2 Kings 17, 17, this is their epitaph. This is what is on their tombstone as a nation. This is what the writer of 2 Kings 17 says. This is exactly what they did. They came into the land. They practiced these detestable things. They sought mediums and spirits, and they sacrificed their children and did all the rest, and God put them off into exile, Assyria for the north, and for the southern kingdom, Babylon. Now, the question is, why would Moses command them not to practice? This is called necromancy. Have you heard of this term? Necromancy is the attempt to contact the dead about the living, to ask a person who has departed and gone on about what is going on in the world today. So that's just called necromancy. Um, so why would Moses command them not to do this sort of thing if it were not possible? If it were not possible. These people think it is possible. And so you and I have to be open-minded as we come to the text because this text seems really kind of weird for us, doesn't it? But it just wasn't weird for them. And they are not to access the spiritual realm through unauthorized means. Scene three divine judgment and spiritual warfare. So we see that there's a judgment that, it, that God has said, if you practice this, you're going to be judged. And then as we push this idea forward into the New Testament, we encounter this idea of spiritual warfare. That's Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul tells us to stand against spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly realms. Now, to our shock here in the story, Samuel's spirit actually replies, he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore. Not that I've been to church in 15 years, <laughs> either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell, to tell me what I should do. 
Do you get the sense that this man's sin has made him stupid? Because that's what sin does. Sin makes you stupid. This guy, by this time in his reign, in his mental state, he is just dumber than a box of hammers. He is one sandwich short of a picnic. And so Samuel answered him, since the Lord has turned uh, away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? Now, the Hebrew there for asking me is, why are you the asker? Underline that. Why are you the asker? And then the Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord, and you did not take care of his, uh, carry out his burning anger against Amalek. And therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me here in the netherworld. And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. So, as I read this, I have to ask the question, is this not the answer he, he thought Samuel was going to give him? I mean, was he expecting good news? On what basis? Scholars have now debated this passage for many, many years, actually going all the way back to Second Temple Jews, and they've debated as to whether or not this is actually Samuel coming up out of the underworld, or whether this is Satan or a demon spirit who is impersonating Samuel. So this debate has been going on for at least 2,000 years, 2,200 years, and this is a very interesting debate, but folks, I for one think that we are dealing with a divine intervention here. God allows this woman to conjure Samuel's actual spirit from the realm of the dead while Samuel's body clearly lies in the grave, is still in the grave in Ramah. And, and his spirit has passed on to rest with his fathers and his ancestors in the afterlife. And notice her shock when she sees him, which suggests that this is probably even out of the ordinary for her. She's just, she screeches, it almost knocks her off her chair when she sees him coming up. And so, and so, God has allowed Samuel to be summoned, but as always, the lesson is clear. Be careful what you wish for, because God might just give it to you. He does get a word from Samuel, but it isn't the word he wants to hear. Now, why in the text would I think that what I suspect that this is Samuel and not an imposter, a demonic spirit, or something like that? Well, because there are four reasons. First of all, Samuel uses a very specific pun for Saul's name. It's in verse 16. He calls him the asker. And if you go back to chapter 12, verse 17, that's the pun or that's the name uh, for, that he calls Saul. So in, in other words, the situation there is Saul hasn't asked for permission to give sacrifices or anything else. He just has gone ahead without the direction or guidance of the Lord or the prophet being present or without a priest. And so when, when uh, he shows up, when Samuel finally shows up, as soon as Saul lights that fire, as soon as he does that, Samuel shows up and he calls him the asker. That's just irony. That's sarcasm. It's like you didn't ask, but you, we're going to call you the asker. Now, the word Saul means the one who asks. So the one who asked didn't ask. He didn't inquire of the Lord, and he doesn't inquire of the Lord. So here we have that same pun in verse 16. Also, Samuel was usually referred to the Lord. If you go back and you look and you just highlight how many times Samuel calls God by his proper name, the Lord, Yahweh. It's the word Yahweh in Hebrew. And if you go back and you underline that or you just highlight every time you see that, you'll find that very rarely does he call God, God. He refers to him very specifically as Yahweh, the Lord. And five times in this final speech, the apparition, the spirit, 
calls him the Lord, not necessarily referring to him as the Lord God. So that's very interesting. That seems like Samuel, something Samuel would do. The Spirit also repeats verbatim in verse 17 the wor- words of Samuel's rebuke and judgment. When he says, the Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, that is exactly, that part of that is exactly the phrasing that was used when he judged him so many years ago. So it's verbatim Samuel's phrasing. And lastly, we notice that um, the Spirit tells him the truth and knows specific details about the future. What's the problem there? Would Satan tell you the truth? Or would he tell you a lie? He'd probably tell you a lie, tell you everything's going to be great tomorrow. Just go on in. In fact, leave your sword at home. But also, this spirit knows the future. And God says repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, the only one that knows the future is me. And any God claiming to be God has to be able to predict the future with specificity. So how does Samuel know the future? How does this spirit know the future? Well, he knows God. He heard it from the Lord. This is a final message that God has intended to deliver in judgment to him. And if we notice in the New Testament, Satan doesn't know the future. We just saw in Matthew chapter 4, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know if he is the Son of God. He doesn't know how Jesus' life is going to play out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, listen, if the rulers and the powers of the air, if the rulers and the powers of this world and the demonic spiritual forces of this world, if they knew what Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead, if they knew how destructive that would be to their rule, to their kingdom, they would never have done that. So they don't know. They do not know the future, but this person does because he's heard it from God. And so Samuel tells him, by this time tomorrow, you and your sons will be here with me. That just means you will be resting with your ancestors here with me in where? In the afterlife, generally. And so this is likely a reference to Sheol, which we find in Isaiah 14.9, for example, portrays Sheol, which is this Hebrew word for death, or the afterlife, as eager to receive the dead and stirs up the spirits who have previously departed to receive the dead. And then in Ecclesiastes 12.7, we see Solomon tells us this, the dust that is of your body when you die, the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so why is all this important? Because, folks, we have to understand that you and I as Christians living in this modern world with all this technological gadgetry and all this scientific sophistication, you and I are the inheritors of a Judaic worldview which is supernaturalist. This is not weird for these people. They don't think this is weird. They think this is quite normal. There are spiritual forces in unseen realms that you and I have to contend with. And Paul tells us this, that the weapons of our warfare are not natural. They're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. And by the way, the the enemies that we face... We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and authorities and spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly realms. Understand that the forces you see in opposition to the gospel have unseen forces behind them. This is the Christian worldview. So what's the principle that we extract from this for the Christian faith? Well, spiritual hunger can only be satisfied in the Lord. And the God who made us for himself. Spiritual hunger, a genuine hunger for spiritual experience can only be satisfied in the God who made us for himself. 
the God who made us for himself. Let me ask you a question. What are those who are engaged in new age and spirituality and the occult and spiritism, what are they looking for? Uh, Have you heard of the new atheism? The new atheism? The new atheism sort of sprung up in the 90s. And these new atheists, they're called the new atheists because they started writing books and they did a full court press really a lot of pressure on the culture to just finally rid itself of all spiritual, spirituality, of all anything related to the church, and they just wanted to put the nail in the coffin. And so guys like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, they began to write these books about how you could be just an intellectually satisfied neo-Darwinist, and you didn't have to believe in God or anything transcendent or have any kind of spiritual experience at all. Well, the new atheism has come, and now it's gone. It's about five years past its sell-by date. (laughs) Justin Brierley, the host of a British radio show called Unbelievable, you can find that on YouTube, he wrote a book. Justin Brierley wrote a book documenting this. It's called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Out of Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. So after the demise of the new atheism, you would think that there would be a return of people to the church. Come back. Come on back. Because the thing that the atheists couldn't provide you, the thing you knew you needed, the thing you hungered for, we got it. It's right here. And some are coming back, but many aren't. Many are turning to spiritism. Many are turning to spirituality apart from the church, spirituality apart from the gospel, spirituality apart from the Bible, and apart from the community of faith, the spirit-filled community of faith. And they're looking for a path. What are they looking for? They're looking for a path to fulfillment. And the occult offers a path into spirituality, but that spiritual life leads to ruin because it doesn't lead us to Jesus. Now, how do you know you need it? How do you know you need it? Let me give you an illustration of this. I'm thinking here of Yeonmi Park. Yeonmi Park, she grew up in North Korea. And she somehow, her story is wild. You can, you can watch her in interviews on YouTube. And she has written books on this. She's a best-selling author. And she talks about her escape from North Korea. Now, North Korea is a gulag state. It's a prison state. Everyone who is there is a prisoner in that state. And so she talked about just starving all the time, just constantly going through starvation. She talks about how there suddenly, as she got a little older, she began to long for freedom. She said, now the weird thing about that, this is the fascinating part of her story. She said, the weird thing about that is we don't have a word for freedom in our culture. We don't even have a word to express it. And she began to think about it all the time. And then finally, miraculously, sovereignly, God in His providence provided her a way of escape, and she escaped to China. And then when people started to describe to her freedom and teach her words for freedom, she was like, yes, I've been longing for that my whole life. Well, how does a person who grows up in a a prison state, a gulag state like that, know to long for freedom when they've never been taught about it? And they don't even have words to express it because God has hardwired it in the soul. You have it because God has put it there, a desire for it, a longing for it. It's like the old C.S. Lewis argument. He used to say, how does a baby who doesn't understand intellectually what food is, does your little baby know what what a burrito is? Oh, but they'll slobber all over it, won't they? How does a baby who intellectually doesn't know what food is know what hunger is? 
They know what hunger is because the belly and the baby is the kind of thing that was made for food. And the reason why you have a spiritual hunger in your life and the reason why you desire transcendent experience is because God has put that in you. But understand, my friend, the only way you're going to get it, the only way you're going to find this path that you've been looking for to a spiritual life, the only way you're going to find something that is real and true, the only way you're going to find life in it is if you turn to Jesus who said this to Thomas in John 14, 6. He said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. The life you and I need is in the Father. It's in the Father, and the only way to get it is through the Son, through His one and only Son. Now, I got news for you. The only people who teach rightly about the Son are Christians who are faithful to this book, Christians who teach rightly from the Bible. If you want the Son, you got to be here. You got to be here to hear about him and learn about him because there's only life in the Father. You can only have that life through the Son. And we teach rightly about the Son. We'll introduce you to him, we'll lead you to him. So, if God made us for it, where can we find it? We find it in Jesus alone. Listen, the spiritual hunger that you've suppressed, maybe you've suppressed it. I just told yourself that there's no spiritual, you don't have any spiritual hunger. And maybe you've just followed the herd, living in the mundane, pursuing material things and the natural world as if that is all there is. Or maybe you pursue dead and lifeless religion that made you feel good and promised happy, feel-good feelings, but hasn't led you to the substance, hasn't led you to the God who gives you life. And now suddenly you're sitting here today and your heart is awakening to this reality that there is something beyond the mundane of your life, the mundane things of your life, and there is a God who made you for himself. The spiritual life that we seek is in Jesus alone, and there is no life outside of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the royal announcement that God's rightful king has arrived. His one and only son who lived a sinless life died a substitutionary death in our place on the cross, rose from the dead, and now all who believe in that one, that son, have spiritual everlasting life. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? It's only in the son. And King Saul has rejected God. He rejected Moses' law not to seek out this kind of spiritual experience in a way that God has not prescribed or authorized. And at the end of that pursuit was nothing but death, ruin, and judgment. And I don't care what anybody is promising you at the end of a pursuit of spirituality apart from Christ, apart from His Spirit-filled community, there is no reality to it, and it leads to ruin. And it's the same for anyone who seeks spirituality apart from Jesus. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is one of the most fascinating passages in the whole Bible. Look at this. He says in verse 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. All right, that's Genesis 2. And the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the second Adam. That is to say, Jesus reboots the human race. 
Jesus is the last Adam, and in him, he became a life-giving spirit. So if you want the light, you can have it, but you got to have it in him. You got to have it in him alone. Because we're all born into Adam, we inherited Adam's death and his sentence, his death sentence. But for those who are born again in Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, you not only inherit his death, become a partaker of his death, you become a partaker of his life, defeating death forever. Now, when the faithful come together here on a Sunday morning, what are we doing? This is not, never ever do I ever want you to think that we are somehow doing like a folk concert and a TED Talk, because that's not what we're doing here. It's also not just the dead routine of religion. We're not just going through the steps so we can check our boxes and get out the door and go to lunch or go into the rest of our week having checked our boxes for Sunday. That's not what we're doing. It's not dead, lifeless liturgy. What we're doing when we meet in this room all together is we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5. Look, look those passages up. What are we doing? We are being filled with the Word of Christ. What we do when we come in here is we gather around this Word. We gather around the Word, God's truth, in the Scriptures, in the Bible. And then we study the Word. We unpack the Word. We sing it. We worship with it. And we meditate on it and we pray it. And as we do, folks, we are supernaturally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what goes on in this room. That is why this meeting right here is the most important meeting you can have all week. All week. Because the Holy Spirit is poured out in this Spirit-filled fellowship. Thanks for coming to church today. Let's pray. Bow your head, close your eyes. Will you just pray with me today? Maybe there's just something in your heart right now that's kind of awakening, just waking, waking up, and you're saying, yeah, I, I've, I've been sensing my need for this, and I want this. Let me lead you in it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I acknowledge today that the only life I can really have is in you the author of creation and the giver of life. And I can only access this spiritual life that is in you that I crave, that I'm wanting, that I desire, that I'm looking for through Jesus, your one and only Son, who is both the Son of God and God the Son. And Jesus has authorized me to become his disciple, to shake off the satanic bonds of this world and to encounter new life in your son. And today, I confess my belief in Jesus. I trust him in my heart for salvation and also satisfaction. I need Jesus to save me and also he's the only one who satisfies and I confess that today. He's the only one who satisfies the hunger in my heart that you made me for. And I receive Christ. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.